0: Hello, everyone. It's episode 20 for Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. Yes, it's 20 episodes. It's day 30. It's all this is. I've been doing this for 30 days. This is episode 20, so it's not been every day. It was supposed to be just a weekly, I know, but look at all that's going on. We had no choice, so here we are uh, with our, our 20th episode, and we just heard that sometime during this episode our 2 millionth episode will have been downloaded 2 million in just 30 days 2 million downloads of Rumble it's <laughs> thank you i guess that's the thing to say whoever is, whoever you are number 2 million out there in wichita, Kansas thank you we appreciate it and um we have been inspired by the response by your comments by your ideas, all of you who have written to us, um, who've sent us messages. It's really, uh, well, this wasn't, it didn't turn out to be what we thought it was gonna be, just a simple weekly howdy high. But that's, I guess, because the times we live in have sort of uh, required us to do now more and something else. And so we have ideas that we'll share with you in the coming days and weeks about that. But for now, um, thank you for, being part of this, and I have a wonderful guest on the show here uh, today. Her name is Kianga Taylor. She is a, a wonderful writer, uh, professor, uh, a great thinker. I like thinkers. This is a time when we need a lot of thinkers. Um, she's an assistant professor of African American Studies at Princeton uh, University. She's the author of a number of books. Uh, one of which is called From Black Lives Matter to Black uh, Liberation. And she also wrote a a great book um, about how African-American communities have essentially been structurally abused uh, in terms of um, not being able to have good housing and housing that they can own. Uh, She actually teaches a class at Princeton called uh, Public Policy in the U.S. Racial State. If you read her writings on this uh, she's she writes for the guardian uh she writes for jacobin uh, magazine it's um it's some pretty pretty powerful uh, uh stuff there's another so there's a class that she teaches called rats riots and revolution housing in metropolitan united states now, i know now listen don't be thinking that i'm gonna bore you to death with a uh some you know big academic uh podcast here not that there's anything wrong with that and all of us need to be reading more thinking more listening more maybe sign up for a class or two right i'm i'm just saying that um i wanted Kianga to come in here today because i just love the way that she thinks about what's going on and uh, what we can do about it so i'm very excited to have Kianga here today and i hope you enjoy this I, like I think most um, people, most Americans at least, um, uh, for the last, um, I want to say three years, but actually my malaise goes back a lot longer because whenever it was I became aware of how the game was set up. Um, It's it's been kind of a brutal um, weight to carry um, ever since. And I wanted to talk to you today because... I'm hoping that somehow by you deepening my malaise, we'll put, actually, <laughs> I will hit bottom and then, <laughs> boing, I'll spring back up and somehow uh, get out of this But Really, what are we in? How did we get here? And is there a path out? And, and no false hope, please.
1: Wow. Um, what are What are we in? I mean, I think this is... This is a decline that has been declining for several decades. I think, you know, we might be in the um, most acute stage of this since since 2008 when the economy crashed and the housing market um, crashed and those helped to create the conditions for uh, Barack Obama to get into office. And I, I think that the case with Obama, as was the case with a lot of kind of third-way neoliberals, you know, who wanted to try to halfway with some of the social programs, um, more than halfway with uh, using the state to leverage capital, um, creates a kind of murky uh, middle that is ultimately um, not just unsatisfying but incapable of responding to the deep needs that exist in this country. And I think that the fallout from that, which we've seen not just in this country, but we've seen aspects of this around the world, is that when the murky third way doesn't work, it opens up the space for the unhinged lunatic right to step in and say, actually, we can solve this problem. Um, And we can solve this problem by clearly in their, way, in their words, articulate what the problem is, which they will blame immigrants, they will blame black people, they will blame uh, uh, the indigent um, for the problems of ordinary and working class people, um, and then try to pursue pol- policies in that direction, all the while uh, creating conditions that uh, are bonanza-like um, for the richest Americans. And so <clears throat> in some ways that, Uh, creates deep wells of despair, um, but it also creates an opening for opportunity. And so I think that we see um, both of those. We see intense polarization um, in the United States. The growth of the right, on the one hand, which is uh, frightening, um, should be taken seriously, but we also see the possibilities for uh, growth on the left. I think that there's no other way to understand the emergence, not just the emergence of uh, the Sanders campaign um, as a real, legitimate alternative, but the uh, historic growth of the Democratic Socialist um, of America, uh, the fact that there have been more protests over the last several years than there have been in decades—all of these point to the constitutive elements of. Uh, the resurgent of the resurgence of a, a a left, a potentially combative left and you you integrate the uh, uh, teacher strikes into that um, as well. And so we are seeing the 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 best and worst of both situations. and you know part of uh, the responsibility, I think for those of us who um, wish to see this be more than just a moment in time, but that, uh, this see this as the beginning of uh, the 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 emergence of a political movement um, that can, you know, not just be viable um, in elections, but that creates a real kind of social movement uh, that can fight for uh, the kinds of political programs that Sanders has talked about. but, to be honest, are uh, will be impossible to achieve without a mess. Uh, social movement, that we have to uh, uh, take advantage of this moment um, to knit together the different kinds of uh, struggles that have emerged into a um, much more substantive, uh, uh, longstanding um, political movement and constitutive uh, organizations to go along with that.
0: I um, I think a lot of people listening to this, just to go back to one of your initial points here, mm-hmm. is that when we voted those of us who did vote for Barack Obama Mm -hmm. uh, for president and thought that, that these huge changes were going to finally take place, but didn't really want to think about how that he wasn't, he didn't see himself as an agent of, of real change, but um, as somebody who would try to moderate things and, and bring people together and all of that. And so, thinking that we were going to get something great um, and having to settle for essentially one bone that we got thrown to us with Obamacare yep. and then realizing that that was really just a half measure. I can't tell you the people that stopped me on the street with Obamacare telling me just how awful it is and how, you know, they, you know, they had to take the bronze plan. So they have this high deductible. Yep, They never really get anything paid for. That's always paying out of their pocket. Um, and I just hear this over and over again. And, and of course, you realize that half measures mm-hmm. are sometimes worse because then the despair that sits in, then people start to think, oh, nothing matters. And it just, right. it, it's not going to, and, um, and in this sort of, I don't think I've ever wanted to ever settle for any half measures, but I certainly from this point on, um, if you were going to give me half, half universal healthcare, right. half the universe to me is no, none of the universe. <laughs> that that, it's like saying, um, uh, can guy, I'm going to, um, I I think, you know, it's, it's wrong that women are not paid the same as men. So I'm going to support paying half the women. Right. Uh, what men, what men get. Right. Uh, I think, you know, and, and, you know, you've got to accept that that's an improvement and we've made progress.
1: Well, it's unnecessary. We don't, this is the, the thing that, that galls me all the time about this, uh, discussion about pragmatism and incrementalism, um, is why do we have to accept that? This country gives, uh, appropriates almost $1 billion or $1 trillion a year to the Department of Defense. I mean, we've got a military budget that uh, is as, as large as its next three, four, five, six, seven uh, uh, peer countries. Um, the, the way that money uh, is spent, you know, People have constantly uh, attacked Sanders with, you know, these questions about how will we ever pay for this? And yet when, you know, we're on the brink of war with Iran, you know, the, the, the Republicans and the conservative Democrats, no one ever asks, how will we pay for this? Um, It's assumed that we will marshal the resources uh, to to go to war. It's assumed that we will marshal the resources to maintain our criminal justice system. It is assumed we will marshal the resources uh, to build this fucking wall. It is assumed we will marshal the resources for every reactionary aspect of uh, the political, uh, various political agendas in this country. But when it comes to things like universal health care, when it comes to uh, fully funding and financing public education on and on and on that, Oh, how are we going to pay for this? Um, so I think it's this disgusting is disgusting to
0: me. Every it time is, it's that question disgusting. is asked at, the, at a debate, how are you going to pay for this free childcare? How are you going to pay for the uh, universal healthcare? Uh, and it, it's like, you have never in all of my life, as i watch watched these debates every four years, you've never asked a, a politician, how are you going to pay for that trillion dollar Pentagon?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, how are you going to pay for that next war? How are you going to pay for this war? Right. It's never asked, but when it's something for the people that will actually help people, right? Then it's like, um, you know, well, look at this. You know, there's, there's no way to pay for it.
1: Right. The thing is, is that what is exciting, though, if you know, because there are exciting things that are happening, is that it feels like if, if it's not run its course, it's coming close to running its course. Uh, at least with a, a growing and significant um, section of the, the the country. And so, you know, where I think that people could kind of write Sanders off in, in 2016 as this weird thing that happened that none of us understand why it happened, you know, it's, it's impossible to do that uh, right now. And as much as the media... Uh, until very recently, until like the last month or or six weeks, has tried to um, treat his candidacy as if it were a gimmick. I think that its sustenance, its ability to, uh, uh, to, to be resilient in the face of either outright attack, ridicule, or just trying to marginalize and ignore it speaks to the deep wells of disdain in this country for the status quo. And that opens up many possibilities uh, for, for things to be different. I think even being able to have these uh, uh, discussions integrated into mainstream conversations that happen around these debates gives it even wider resonance. And I think this uh, uh, speaks to an opportunity for those of us who care about these things uh, to really push through this opening that has been created uh, to start demanding the things that we want.
0: What do you say to people who you know well, I, I like bernie you know i i agree with him on this or that or whatever but he can't win and and i'm tired of having this electability uh discussion and i remind them that i'm sure back in 2006 when you heard that there was someone by the name of barack hussein obama running um you probably said oh you i, I like what he said at that convention yeah. in know but he Not can't really he but can, yeah you know he can't uh, he can't yeah. win yeah you know um no, I, I sat there seven rows from the stage and listened mm. to it. And I watched everybody, mostly yeah. white people, get really excited yeah. because he was validating yep. uh, their existence, their history, their mm-hmm. – um, it was really – and I just I remember looking around. I <clears throat> Sitting there with a Michigan delegation, saying and just, absolutely
1: uh, nothing. By the way, Sam, <laughs> I know I mean, if you go back boy, and listen on to it, what earth is he even talking about? It's, I know um, there's, there's no blue America, there's no red America.
0: Okay, no, but it's yes, but it it's like a Cat in the Hat sort of uh, if if Cat in the Hat was was put to it, and that's I'm doing a terrible disservice to Doctor oh. Zeus, but um, but put to a pop song, it it that's that's that that's that that historic speech, right, and um, and maybe I'm just, now I have the benefit of hindsight and, and maybe, but I can't take it any longer. I can't take right. this sort of asking me to go uh, halfway with things. You know, this whole thing with Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. this uh, past week, mm-hmm. boy, well, one of the reasons you're here today is is to help me explain it to me. what What happened? I think there's an explanation. I think I've got it figured out, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are.
1: So- <sighs> Uh, two two things one about electability i mean i th- i think bernie sanders is is more than electable and you know again he's been one of the front runners of the the democratic candidates since these awful debates began um in july uh, and over the the course of um the primary season or the campaign season um Every time the premature death of his campaign uh, has been declared, um, he has come back uh, uh, even, even stronger. I mean, I think, you know, in October when he had the heart attack, uh, you know, the, the campaign was all but written off and, you know, everyone was uh, cajoling him to, con- you know, to uh, concede his support to, to Warren um, to get his supporters on board with Warren and, you know, hang it up. And um, instead, he came out of that uh, stronger uh, with the endorsement of Alexandria, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez and um, uh, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. So um, I think that uh, it's actually the resilience of the Sa- Sanders campaign that has the uh, Democratic Party establishment um, worried concerned uh, and continuing to push this narrative of electability. They know he's electable. Mm -hmm. Every time Bernie Sanders and his uh, uh, surrogates and supporters go out and speak, they win new people to the campaign because it's for the first time someone in a mainstream legitimate political uh, race is actually talking to the real concerns of people and not just talking about, you know, what we're not and what we're against, but actually putting forward a program of things that we are for, Uh, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, access to to, to college, getting rid of student debt. He's putting forth a positive program of what we're for. And that is part of what the appeal is. It's not just, you know, we're going to let Trump hang himself and not actually talk about anything. Um, And so I think that that scares the democratic party establishment which is just as dirty you know as 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 aspects of the 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 republican party just without the 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 white supremacy um, but just as embedded with uh corporate you know corporations uh with you know the the inequitable institutions um that you know are this you know kind of uh uh, uh underpin our our society, and so Bernie scares them. And part of being scared is to push this idea that uh, he can't actually win. They're scared to death he can win.
0: Right. I think that's really it. Yeah. I, I think whenever that question is raised, I always, I always think, oh, I get it. You're afraid that he actually is going to win.
1: Yes. That
0: he actually does represent the majority of people in this yes. country. The majority of people in this country. Um. You know the way that the Americans are. Presented by cable news, by the pundits, by the by the people that are the leadership, so called leadership Mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party. You know, the actual American people, the majority of them live from paycheck to paycheck. Yes. The actual majority do not have five hundred dollars to their name. Yes. The actual majority, when they talk about though the working class, the working class, the majority of the working class are women. The majority of the working class are people of color. The majority of the working class are 18 to 35 year olds. Mm-hmm. They are paid the young the mm-hmm. the least amount of money. Mm-hmm. And yet they want us to have the image of lunch bucket Joe. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in suburban Detroit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and um, I was I was I just I was just on this show and this this uh, <laughs> this person said to me, you know, what about the forgotten man? You know, Mike, you know, she was trying to explain to me why we should keep the electoral college because it'll protect the forgotten man out there who doesn't have, you know, if you're in Iowa or you're in Nebraska or you're in the whatever. And I tried to explain in a nice way, and I don't know, maybe, I, maybe the nice part has to, I have to cut that out, I don't know what to mm-hmm. do. Because I tried to say it a nice way, when you talk about the quote forgotten man, the actual forgotten people in this country are the people who still occupy the lowest rungs That's of the right. economic ladder. That's right. Black people, brown people, Native Americans. Um, the the majority gender is still the minority uh, mm-hmm. in terms of power. Um, you know, that's what we should be focused on fixing. And um,
1: well, to me, this is what is missing from the the discussion. If we're going to talk about sexism, I mean, did Bernie Sanders tell Elizabeth Warren that? A woman could not be president of the United States. I don't believe that. But mm. I think the way that the, the media pounces on these fake skirmishes between candidates, fake in the sense that these are, are, are largely media concoctions and creations. It doesn't mean that there was not some exchange between Sanders and Warren, Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. There's not a lot of clarity about what exactly happened. But there's a substantive discussion to have about uh, gender, about women, and about sexism in American society in, in American society. And this is not it. I mean, if we want to talk about where the candidates who are running for the Democratic Party nomination stand on abortion rights, let's have that discussion. Where they stand on reproductive rights. Let's have that discussion. Where they stand on uh, unionization of women, because we know that women who are in trade unions uh, 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 make more money than women who are not. Let's have that discussion. If we want to have a discussion about childcare and, and its inaccessibility and how to use federal funds to make that. Uh, accessible to more women let's have that discussion I mean there there are many discussions that we can have about women gender uh, uh, sexism in our society that will give people a clearer idea of what candidate has a plan uh, to actually try to uh, uh, improve the quality of life of women but instead you know th- I mean this is silly season for the for the press it's like you know it's it's front page, Uh, uh, news that Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to shake Bernie Sanders' hand after the debate. And so we're not talking about the substance uh, uh, of a serious political issue. Instead, you know, we're talking about the 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 optics of what happened uh, at a at a debate where you know this is the moderator's uh, big opportunity to to be seen on, on on cable television and not to actually dig further into the issues uh, that are at stake in the campaign.
0: Yeah, I feel more stupid after watching the debate. You know, I just I know. don't even want to watch this stuff anymore.
1: And it's been months of this. It's months just like, of it,
0: and the questions that are asked. You know. The the one this week about uh, the question was posed to Bernie. Uh, The Ayatollah uh, believes that U.S. troops should be out of the Middle East. Do you agree with the Ayatollah? (laughs) 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 I mean, I know, I know. uh, On on the same day that Trump tweeted out a photoshopped picture of Schumer and Pelosi wearing Muslim uh, dress. Right. um, yeah, it is the silly season and, uh, and we can't get much of substance. And so now what are people to do between now and November? I mean, the people listening to this right now are full of, of uh, despair of what can I do? How can I as one person make a difference? Um, people want to be involved. People are not apathetic. They, <clears throat> Absolutely. Are, they are highly engaged in, the, in how politics affects their lives. Because it affects it on so many levels, and and yet they feel helpless.
1: Well, to me, this is this is part of what is exciting um, about the Sanders campaign right now is that it really does have the feel um, of a, a, a social movement, meaning in um, every city, you know, every location around which uh, there are debates and discussions about. Um, The uh, election that there are, you know, waves of volunteers, there's waves of organizing uh, that are going on to try to get the vote out um, for Sanders. And I think that that is really um, important. And I think that there are other aspects uh, of this as well. There is the organizing going on. Uh, uh, to combat climate change. Uh, There's organizing going on for the uh, homes guarantee around uh, issues of housing. Uh, There is organizing going on around uh, student debt, um, around issues related to mass incarceration, uh, policing, uh, uh, bail reform. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, issues that have ignited people around the country. And part of I think our difficulty is creating clear entry points for people uh, to get involved, because I think that that uh, is, it remains a critical aspect of not just the campaign, but what happens after the campaign, what happens. Uh, and, and, and really, in some sense, this this is important no matter who wins. Uh, it's especially important uh, if, if Sanders wins, which is, how do we create the pressure on the ground uh, to make the various aspects of the the campaign that have motivated people? um, How do we create the conditions on the ground where people can get involved and begin uh, to press around uh, these issues to actually make them realizable? Um, And so in that sense, it's a very exciting time uh, uh, for politics because It's clear. I mean, one of the things that has been so important about um, Sanders' campaign is the whole notion of of us, not me, that this is not about a single personality who has figured it all out and who has all the answers, but understands that his, his candidacy, his program is only even legible because of what people do on the ground. And so that opens up an opportunity for people to get involved. And I think that for organizers, it becomes critical that we create clear, accessible entry points uh, for people to get involved.
0: Yeah, he's made it very clear that um, if you think this is about you voting for me, and that's the fix, um, sorry, it won't happen that way. It will only happen if you're voting for me, because you and me and all of us are part of a movement, right. and um, if you have that sense that you're part of a movement, you're that you're going to engage not just on election day, right. but imagine. I mean, let's just let's just say a year from this month, it's President Sanders is being mm-hmm. inaugurated. On day one, the fight that he's going to have on so many levels to try and achieve his goals will be enormous, and it will only succeed. If tens of millions of people are out there pushing it, behind it, fighting for it with him, um, silence guarantees a defeat.
1: I mean, this is if if Sanders were to win, and I absolutely think that he can win. Not only will he have to fight a Republican Party that has sh- shed any illusion that it is anything. Uh, but a mouthpiece um, for for Trump. but also half of the Democratic Party, you know, who is in bed with business. and I think that's uh, gonna be his real problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so without the the movement aspect uh, to this, it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, there's there's too much opposition um, in a Congress filled with millionaires who have no clue what life is like for ordinary people in this country. You said before, and I, I try to make this uh, abundantly clear um, when I talk about these things, that the average wealth of a U.S. senator is something like $3 million. Mm. In the House, the average wealth is, I believe, $990,000. Now, we know that in, the, in the, the, the country as a whole, the median income for... Uh, white families is somewhere between seventy and seventy-six thousand dollars, and for Black families it's around forty thousand dollars. And so we have a country of people who barely make the ends meet, who are being governed by a bunch of millionaires and a billionaire, or at least someone who claims to be a billionaire in the White House. And so this is part of the 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 problem um, in this country. And it is why the Congress is so addicted to the status quo, because they benefit from the status quo. They have profited from the status quo. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, this is why there's so much deeply entrenched cynicism about politics in this country. This is why Congress rarely rates higher than lice and cockroaches in these, you know, cynicism index polls that, that are taken. Um, because there's such a huge gulf between the 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 ordinary people of this country and the the, the people who govern us. and this is this is coming this, this is not the final uh, 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 clash between those two opposing forces. but you can sense how the this is coming to an end that there there is a a uh, 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 no longer. Is just this kind of blind, banal defense of the status quo good enough? And people are demanding more and people's expectations um, are rising, but not not in the way that with Obama, it was centered around an individual talking about hope and talking about change. One of the things that Sanders has done that I think is so important is... Putting a a together and an, a material argument for why we should expect more, you know, talking about uh, uh, universal health care. not as some pie in the sky dream that one day in in our children's lifetime that this might be achievable, but that this is something that is achievable now. And if we do achieve that, it will just mean that we are now in the 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 company of our peer, uh, uh, countries. This is not some extraordinary feat right. of humanity right. to right. provide health care. Right. You know, and so this is mm-hmm. this is a much more uh, uh, substantive way to raise people's expectations than just to talk about hope and change articulated through an individual.
0: What's a very specific way that we could say to people, instead of trying to give this false hope and, yeah. and uh, many changes... <laughs> make it look like we've got some big changes going on
1: right
0: you know what's the thing that we can say to people right now you and i in terms of what they can do to help create the the sort of real revolution that needs to take place here because i I think people i mean look you we see it happening already we've been seeing it like you said at least since 08 with occupy wall street with black lives matter um with and now the teenagers with their extinction rebellion yes. and Greta and all the kids yeah. that are, the kids have figured out the planet that they're being left. Yes. They see their adult lives being full of suffering yes. and misery and choking to death on and this endless planet. That. Yes, endless. Yes. And so they've risen up now. Um, so there are ways for people to get involved and to join and participate with others, with neighbors and their communities and whatever. But, I also think that there's these, these there's kind of the daily thing that you can, just the little things that you can do where you just decide, I refuse to see the world in this way any longer. I'm not participating in this uh, any longer and, and I'm not sitting it out, Right. but here's what I'm going to do. And, you know, and maybe I'm just, I'm so, the whole Flint water thing has mm. such a devastating mm. uh, impact on my own head, not devastating on my health. Because I didn't have to drink the water, right? But the 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 people there who have had to suffer through this with a Republican governor who covered it up, mm-hmm. but a Democratic president yes. during the entire Flint water crisis who at any point could have sent in the National Guard, could have sent in the Army Corps of Engineers to dig yeah. up the poison pipes and replace them
1: just like that, or could have said something, yes,
0: or said something. Oh, but yeah. and, and instead what he did, yeah. he came to Flint, and because he's always wanting to things now
1: and drank the water
0: and he drank the water yeah. and told people to drink the water. and the, the the audible gasp in the in the gymnasium you know it's a majority black city that was a majority black audience and the and it, it was a it was a knife through the heart and I know I know because I am of there and I'm still you know mm-hmm. obviously very connected to my friends and family and others uh, uh, I knew that a lot of them they were never gonna say anything publicly against Obama we never thought we'd see this in our lifetime mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm full of racism, electing a black man as president. Um, But, but they gave up and they said they, they they not gave up, but they checked out of the Mm -hmm. political system Mm -hmm. and decided not to vote. None of them, I don't think any one of them voted for Trump, Mm -hmm. but they weren't going to vote for more of the same. Right. um, That they've been hoodwinked long enough. And um, boy, that's an epiphany day when the bamboozling, Mm -hmm. the realization that you've been bamboozled, (laughs)
1: Well, I think I don't think it's just people in Flint. I mean, I think one of the um, one of the reasons why Joe Biden has gotten a free ride um, in terms of a a real look at not just his his earlier record because he always deflects the earlier record by saying, well if I'm as racist as my uh, opponents say, or my critics say, then Obama never would have picked me uh, as vice president. Um, but there's, without a real interrogation of uh, Obama's presidency, it means that Biden gets a free, gets a free pass um, by just being uh, uh, Obama's vice president. Um, and I think that without that interrogation, um, of Obama's presidency, we don't really understand how Trump came to be uh, president or some very important factors uh, of how Trump came to be president. Now, of course— And,
0: and, and, yeah. and just go further on that. Uh,
1: no, well, I was going to say, of course, there's the, uh, the, the issues of voter suppression, but I think that we can't explain all of it. In terms of black voters, by just talking about voter uh, suppression, the turnout um, in the the black uh, turnout in the 2016 presidential election was the the, the lowest turnout in 20 years, um, and I think that uh, part of that has to do with the the smallness of the impact of Obama's presidency substantively in the lives of, uh, of African-Americans, which is to say that if you vote for someone like you have never voted before, as African-Americans did, voted for Obama in historic numbers, and yet substantively very little is transformed, you can blame the Republican Congress. And of course, there's a discussion to be had there but no one runs for president saying, well, this is too hard. This is gonna be too hard. Here are all the things that I won't be able to do. He ran as hope and change. Change comes to Washington, doesn't come from Washington. He positioned politically his campaign as the successor to the civil rights movement, right? Rosa sat so Martin could march, so Obama could fly. Right. He did not. Jay-Z came up with that. But, you know, Obama did not try to uh, to uh, uh, dissuade people from saying that. And retroactively, people try to say, oh, you guys projected all your, you know, wants and desires onto him. He didn't promise any of that. And that might go over with people who weren't actually there in 2007 and 2008 and looked at the way that he connected his uh, uh, candidacy uh, to that earlier period of struggle. And it wasn't just with the civil rights movement. I remember, and I'm about as cynical as elected officials as anyone, but I remember in the spring, the winter and spring of 2008, when Obama was in the, the, the primary fight with Clinton and the speeches that he was making after these caucuses and primaries were things that we had never heard from a mainstream Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. where he's talking about the abolitionist movement, he's mm-hmm. talking about the sit-down strikes in the 1930s, mm-hmm. he's talking about the Stonewall uprising, yeah. a riot, yeah. as as you know, bottom-up movements, and placing his campaign in that same right. historical historical lineage. So we weren't, everyone wasn't just projecting their hopes and wishes onto Obama. This was being cultivated to see his campaign as a social movement. Right. And so the problem, though, is that as soon as he is elected, he begins to renege on the most basic of of promises. Even there, I mean, there there were actual campaign promises that were broken, Mm -hmm. but even the notion that this would be something different was broken. Right. And for me, the the lasting, the thing that stands out most about that was Troy Davis, a black man who was falsely accused of murder on death row in Georgia, about to be executed. An international campaign had developed over several years uh, to try and save his life. And on the night that he was to be executed, there were black students from Howard University marching through Washington, DC. Students marched to the Supreme Court and they marched to the White House. And this was the moment that young black people, this was the reason why young black people put Barack Obama um, into office. No one wanted to talk about or hear about federal jurisdiction versus you know state jurisdiction. No one cared about federalism in this moment. These young people wanted their black president to come out and acknowledge them and to say something about Troy Davis and to try to intervene to save his life. And instead, he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He made I don't think he made any comment. I know the next day after Troy Davis had been executed, he sent Jay Carney, his white spokesperson, out to a press briefing Um, where he said that this was just a states' rights issue and he'd have no further comment on it. And so that was one of many moments of disappointment, perplexing disappointment, that pointed more to continuity with the past than the change that had been um, promised. And I think over the course of his presidency that, this culminates into not just frustration but a deep sense that um it actually doesn't matter you know and this is why people that's
0: awful that's a killer check out yeah. i know
1: yeah and i i was thinking about this um i was talking to uh, someone about this um last week i remember in the shortly after trump had been elected um the uh, Obama had already agreed to allow the UN to come uh, into the U.S. to investigate poverty, um, and so the uh, the UN released its report um, on poverty in the U.S. and the the report said many things, but one of the things that it said was that poverty in the United States um, existed nowhere else in the developed world; um, that it was so intense that there there was hookworm infestation in black communities in mm-hmm. Alabama, mm-hmm. Uh, in Georgia. Um, and, you know, the, it, one one of the images that was so indicative of the, the depth of the kind of poverty that we're talking about uh, were PVC pipes um, in people's homes that were just taking waste from the toilet and dropping it into a hole in the front yard. And, you know if that PVC pipe has been there for eight years of Obama, because clearly this did not begin with him, uh, but if it'd been there for eight years of Obama, been there eight years of Bush, and perhaps even eight years of, of Clinton, then what does it matter? You know, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. If electing these various regimes into power um, especially the Democratic Party regime, which claimed to, uh, to care about these issues, which claim to care uh, about the conditions of the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. But if those conditions don't actually change in any meaningful way over that course, then what is the motivating factor to get people to get out and vote for you? And so I thought about that when trying to comprehend the... 20 year low uh, in black voter turnout in 2016 in an election that we were told was the most important one in our lifetime. And so if Obama had said, which he did that voting for Hillary was his third term was voting for him Mm -hmm. as a way to try to mobilize people to get out to vote. um, And you have this dramatic drop in voter turnout Um, then that is also indicative of what people uh, thought, black people in particular, um, of his presidency. And people will defend uh, Obama because he's been viciously attacked by uh, the racist right, Um, and we understand that. But that was also a referendum um, on what people thought about his campaign. Uh, Nobody wants to say that. Yeah.
0: Nobody wants to think that. Well, I just did. You just said (laughs) You are a black woman, and you have just said that a historic 20-year low in terms of black turnout in 2016, in part, as a referendum on the fact that after eight years of Barack Obama, black life in America hadn't really changed. Right. Hadn't really gotten that much of it. It was
1: so bad that we actually needed a movement called Black Life Matters.
0: That you actually have to have something called. Yes. You even have to say that a black life matters. Yeah. That that even has to be, you know how weird that sounds to people in other countries? That we have to have a movement called Black Lives Matter.
1: Right. Right. No, absolutely. And that has
0: to start during the time we have an African-American president. Right. I didn't start this episode of the podcast um, promising to lift people's spirits. (laughs) Um, but um, I do believe that there is a fight within all of us.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the movement Black Lives Matter uh, is, is, is indicative of that. It's terrible that you live in uh, a country where you must insist upon that, but the fact that people actually do get out and insist upon that um, and that it has made a monumental difference in the discussions about uh, prison reform, um, about the problems and perils of mass incarceration is part of the fight. I mean, this is what it means to talk about polarization in the U.S. It's not just one thing. It's both things that are happening um, at, the, at the same time. It's deaths by despair, but it's also the, the attempts to revive the trade union movement. Um, the number of strikes increasing, the number of people who want to be organized, who desire to be organized, graduate students who are trying to organize, students across the country who are trying to organize, climate movement that is trying to organize and mobilize. This is this is the other side of what is happening, and it is exciting. It's an important and it's important that that people engage and get connected to that.
0: Women running for office.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Record numbers. Um, I mean, there, yes, there are all these signs that people are not just sitting on the sofa uh, right. watching reality television. Right. Uh, they are engaged, and I think a lot of people do really realize that they are engaged in a fight for their life, for the mm-hmm. lives of their children, the lives of their parents and grandparents, um, as we see and as we can predict that as people get older, um, the, the way that, that they're going to be left behind. Right. Um, because the system is set up to benefit very few. And the way that you describe the fact that what the average senator is three mm-hmm. million dollars and yes. so the average member of the House is 900 and some thousand dollars, you know, I think hundreds of years from now, maybe maybe not even that long historians, um, that's assuming the planet doesn't reject our species <laughs> in the next uh, 50 or 100 years, But they will write about us and they'll go, look at this quizzically. Yes, quizzically, they'll wonder, <laughs> How did how did three hundred million, in what they called a free society, Mm -hmm. allow themselves to be subservient to um, ten million or Mm -hmm. twenty million that held Mm -hmm. the wealth um, Mm -hmm. over the three hundred plus million? Mm -hmm. They'll wonder what was wrong with these people. Why didn't they rise up? Why didn't they demand? Why Why did they actually go? They actually went and voted for these millionaires. Mm -hmm. To be their leaders,
1: mm-hmm. it's hard. Their routine of divide and conquer is so refined; it's so skilled. That's that's how the parasitic one percent um, hold power over the ninety nine percent. You know, is that you run a campaign that. The Mexicans and the immigrants are the ones who are ruining your life. Mm-hmm. And you make that real by rounding people up, by doing raids, and the, the, the media kind of go along with, you know, uh look at these, you know, people taking these jobs and um not really allowing uh voices to combat that, not allowing uh, voices of, of those communities to, to, to be heard, to uh, talk about their experiences in this country, uh, the, demonization, uh, Muslims, uh, the demonization of Muslims, Islamophobia, the demonization of African Americans as criminals um, that is used then to justify the expansion of the security state, uh, that is used to justify uh, $80 billion a year being spent on um, incarcerating people uh, and that is used to justify the expanded use of, of policing um, in prison in ways that is directed at black people but can very quickly pivot uh, uh, to ensnare others um, and so
0: and while you're doing all yeah, of this
1: robbing it, people blind yeah,
0: but make it look like you're not make right. it look like that how much better things are for black people right for all, look at all the women elected to Congress. Look at all, you know, they're constantly pointing to these things. So it's like little, little, little shots of, I don't know what the drug is that are supposed to suddenly make you happy.
1: Right. Right. Um, right, right.
0: And, and and we're getting fed this every day in the media. Right. um, And being reminded by our leaders just how much better things are.
1: Right. When in fact. When we think about the narratives around poverty, um, for African-Americans in particular, that uh, it has something to do with family structure. It has something to do with the personal habits or decisions that people make uh, every day when it's actually about the absence of money. It's about the absence of of resources. But if you argue for that, if you suggest that, then that also uh, suggests that we create programs, um, that we create... Uh, 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 some kind of structural um, response, which is why this country has always uh, tried to look at issues of of personal responsibility as explanations for poverty instead of something that is rooted and structured um, in the way our economy uh, operates and the the, the structure of our society, because that may require uh, a a structural response and that might require uh, uh, taxing uh, the the rich and those who have uh, resources, and so all of that, I think, feeds into uh, a way of making people feel uh, atomized, isolated, um, and responsible for their own problems in our in our society, and that is why we have this issue of death by despair. That is not just about uh, poor and working class white people, although that is important to, 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 to say that in this country, even working class white men and women are seeing their life expectancy go in reverse. Right. This does not happen in the developed world. No, nowhere. Life expectancy does not go into reverse. And it's driven by drug addiction, Opioid abuse, alcoholism, suicide, right? Right. These are not the markers of privilege. This is the marker of uh, despair, depression, isolation. For young black people, the leading cause of death, the second leading cause of death is suicide, Mm. right? Mm. Mm. This comes from Mm. feeling like you have absolutely no future. And- that the problems that you incur and that you see around you are somehow because of you. And so this country has really the 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 political establishment, you know, in in Chicago, I was in Chicago for a long time, it always would disturb me when Barack Obama would come to town and talk about the absence of role models. This is the problem in Chicago for mm. young black kids. Mm. They don't have good role models. Not this, you know, historic levels of racial segregation. Not the uh, uh, fact that 45% of young men of working age, um, uh, 24 to 30, are, are unemployed. Um, not because the jobs that people do have don't pay them enough to sustain themselves or their families. Uh, none of that. It's role models. You know, and this this is what they tell people, which leads people to feel like these are problems that they created um, on their own, which then leads people to want to check out in one way or the other uh, from from reality. And so part of the power of the Sanders campaign that I think is so important is actually naming these problems as not individual problems that you created but that these are systemic problems. These are problems of, of a rapacious capitalism that will suck people dry so that some people may live well, right? 400 or 500 billionaires in this country exist because there are 45 million people living in poverty. Right. Those are intersecting facts. Right. With great wealth comes great poverty. And that is not because you made this or that decision uh, as a parent or that you made this or that decision as a student, you didn't pay attention in class, and thus the eviction, the getting your heat cut off, yeah. the getting your electricity cut off is your fault, is your fault and is your problem. That these are deeper systemic problems, and we have to change that in order to really change people's lives.
0: I really, I loved um, a couple months ago when a, uh, Alexandria AOC um, made this statement that uh, every billionaire in America represents a policy failure. Yes, that 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 just your existence, just the fact that we have billionaires, means absolutely that there's something deeply wrong and undemocratic about yes. our American system. Um, our executive producer of this podcast, actually, he, he reframed it the other day. I heard he, he said, um, every, every billionaire, uh, in this country is, um, an example of just how much the guillotine is failing, um, <laughs> these days <laughs> it's every, what he said, every billionaire represents just one more guillotine. That's not working um of course now we're nonviolent people and we're not we're not uh billionaires who might be listening please don't uh don't hire a hit on me uh, for that but um let me ask you you personally mm-hmm. um so you live in philly uh, yeah and you aside from your your work as a writer as a teacher as a thinker um um you also have to live in this world mm-hmm. as an individual yep um and i'm curious what what are you doing what have you decided to do here in 2020 you personally mm-hmm. to um you're already in the fight
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh deeply and wonderfully but you must have and maybe i'm just projecting because i basically had to come to this conclusion that i had to i had to um shift
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, into a even more active more aggressive uh stand and actions mm-hmm. and i'm just curious if, if you don't mind sharing, walking us through the personal, not journey, but actual yeah. in these, in the moment that we're in and what you've decided you personally to do.
1: I think it's a, it's probably a similar thing, um, which is, um, I mean, I, I was an organizer, uh, for a long time, um, which meant that I went to meetings five or six nights a week. Um, I, I uh, was in various discussions with with people about different kinds of organizing um, projects you know for years at a time but what it looked like on a daily basis was that I went to a lot of meetings um and so it's it's difficult for me to do that now um, because uh, the I,
0: organizing or just the meetings
1: the 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 organizing and those kinds of uh, daily meetings yeah um I, I teach, I have a three-year-old, um, you know, so I have family. Um, but uh, what I have decided and, and figured out that um, I can do is that um, I write a lot um, about many of the things that we're uh, talking about as a way to try to uh, explicate things to a larger um audience to try to make sense of the political moment and the world that we're in. Um, I speak, uh, a lot, um, uh, publicly in the, in the same way to talk about, um, these issues, why they're met, ma- why they matter, uh, and, and why people, uh, need to get involved to actually create the conditions, uh, for us to, um, be able to to actualize this political uh, agenda in this in this moment. And so I think everyone has to figure out what they're able uh, to do. And uh, for me, those are the the main contributions um, that I'm trying to make right now, because I think that I can uh, I can reach an an audience that other people might not be able to. Um, I think that, um, if I can play any role in trying to activate, um, that audience, then, you know, I think that that is a positive contribution. And so I do think that we Mm -hmm. all have to figure out, um, what it is that we can do and that we're kind of in an all hands on deck moment and that every contribution, um, no matter what it is, is, is critical right now.
0: It's significant, even in its smallest form. Um, I'm going to post a couple of your articles so that people can read them on the on the podcast site, Um, because I think yours is one of these voices that we need to hear more from. I mean, and why don't we? Why don't we in the not in the Jacobins or the other you know the magazines? But 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 I I should see you on TV. I should hear (laughs) you on NPR. I should more at least Mm -hmm. you know than um, and it's and and for every there's there's ten more of you. There's a hundred more of you. There's a thousand more of you. (laughs) Yeah yeah yeah. And they're all over the country and we don't get to hear from them. And I think that's holding us back. I think that with this this lack of a of a real discussion right. about what's going on. Right. And about, you know, how much I mean I've asked myself this, you know, is what I'm doing, am I willing to take whatever risk needs to be taken? And when I say that I'm Yay. obviously speaking nonviolently and whatever, but to throw myself up against the barricade Yep. With the people, with, with um, by doing everything I can. I mean, I think the fact that you're raising a three year old, I think that's an important political act. <laughs> I think that that's in the sense that, that if you're raising another one of you, automatically the world is a better place, yeah, yeah, yeah. in my humble opinion. <laughs> All right. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, though, everyone who's doing that, or everyone who's raising kids, I mean, these, these kids are these days are, are better. Mm-hmm. If you have one of them, if mm-hmm. you have a tween yeah, yeah, yeah. or a teen, they're not haters in the way they would have been 30, 40, 50 years yeah. ago.
1: Yeah
0: um, they they don't have an opinion as to who you're in love with. Mm-hmm. If you're in love mm-hmm. with somebody, mm-hmm. that's good enough right it, 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 so there's so many things that are better in that way because we've raised kids right. differently now, but it's like um, I don't think we have much time at this point. And I'm constantly trying to think of what else is it that I can be doing? um, Because I hear the TikTok.
1: Right. I mean, I do think that there are things that individually people should think about what, how they can plug in, what contribution they can make. I do think that one of the things that is also important is connecting with other people. And so I think that wherever you are, even if you're somewhere where it's deeply red and there's no uh, uh, Sanders campaign to, to connect to, um, that it's important to find, to, to find people who are thinking like you, to find people who have the same kinds of concerns that you do, um, and connect with each other. Yeah, and you don't have so, to be alone in this. Yeah, and right. so you can connect over uh, – articles over podcasts, over um, you know, books, uh, uh, but to find uh, that one, two, three, that group of people uh, to connect with so that it doesn't feel like you are trying to to carry the weight of the the world right. um, on your own shoulders. Um, and to, you know begin by by talking about what's happening in the world, but also, um, to try pivoting <clears throat> pivoting outward um, and and to to try to give a, a, a public face to some of the discussions um, that you're having as a way to connect uh, uh, with other people um, uh, to to have a group of people to engage with about politics and, and and what's happening but to also figure out what are the things that are happening um, in your town in your city in your locality Um that you want to do something about, um, and to, to pull people together to, to do that. I think too often in this country we've seen politics from on high. Uh, that that politics, uh, you know, come to us. That you know we're not the ones who initiate mm-hmm. um, political action, mm-hmm. and I think that that uh, that has to change. We have to take responsibility. Um, For our world, because the people who have been formally charged with that responsibility um, are doing an abysmal job. Mm. They're doing Mm. a terrible job and cannot be trusted or relied upon uh, uh, to carry out those responsibilities unto themselves. Even those uh, who say the right thing and want to do the right thing also have to be emboldened by uh, uh, popular uh, support. And we have to get away from this idea that politics is something that happens out there, over there, among that group uh, of people, and take responsibility for the circumstances and situations uh, around us.
0: The um, our executive producer, who I mentioned uh, earlier, who I believe must have some kind of stock in the guillotine uh, in, <laughs> in the industry, um, has been in the booth here listening uh, to this, and and and. Uh, Actually, has a question uh, that uh, sure. that uh, that he'd like to ask Basil. Uh, go ahead. Uh, so the the phrase identity politics has been used and maybe misused so much over the past, particularly over the past couple of years. You've maybe written the book or, mm-hmm. or edited the book um, that gets to the heart of of where that originates from and what it actually is. It's called How We Get Free. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear the phrase or use the phrase identity politics, w- what does that actually mean?
1: Well, I think there's, there's always what the uh, originators of the phrase um, meant for it to mean. There's the historical context within which they uh, originated the phrase, and so it meant something there. Um, and then there's how uh, all language... This phrase, other phrases change in meaning uh, over time in terms of how they in terms of how it's used. So identity politics uh, is a, a, a phrase that is coined um, by uh, the Combahee River Collective. Um, and three women wrote a, a statement introducing the collective to a wider public um, that was published in 1977 um, and in that um, uh, public statement that they wrote, uh, they used the phrase identity politics for the first time. Um, and how they meant uh, the, the phrase was essentially that, um, and they were talking about black women, uh, that black women's politics develop um, largely in the experiences incurred through their identity um, as black women. Uh, so, racism, uh, sexism, uh, sterilization attacks, uh, uh, demonization as, as uh, uh, welfare recipients, um, all of these things that brought race and gender uh, together for particular uh, attacks on um, black women uh, became part of the basis for black women's radical politics during this period uh, of time. So, they were talking very basically Uh, in some sense, of how uh, the identity of the oppressed um, become the source of uh, how they look at the world um, and thus the political conclusions that they come to um, in the world. I think, you know, there's a way in which identity politics uh, today is invoked um, in a very narrow uh, way, which is to say that uh, you know, people want to look at one aspect uh, of identity. Um, and so, you know, there are those who would decry the uh, absence of Cory Booker or uh, Kamala Harris from uh, the Democratic uh, contingent of, of candidates because now uh, the black voice has been um, removed Well, that's one part of their identity, but that narrow focus misses how other aspects of their identity um, might undercut uh, their uh, stated efforts to try to reach uh, Black voters, which is their identity as uh, uh, senators or their, you know, Cory Booker's identity as a champion of public school privatization might actually undermine his ability to connect uh, with black voters, uh, the majority of whom um, are working class. Kamala Harris's uh, role as a prosecutor might actually undercut her identity as a black woman uh, in terms of her uh, efforts to criminalize and incarcerate uh, young working class black people um, in, in California. Uh, and so there's uh, the, the the Combahee women were looking at the kind of collective aspect of uh, identity for working class Black women as a way to understand uh, their politics. And I think as uh, uh, class uh, the class distinction among African Americans has become even sharper over the last uh, 40 or or so years. Um, that there are aspects of that that complicate the one aspect. Uh, of the identity in terms of some of these people's ability uh, to reach a larger and broader uh, um, uh, working-class black public.
0: And let's not forget, as the media has told us, that even though we no longer have a black candidate uh, on the ballot uh, in these primaries, um, there still is a voice For black people. Absolutely. Yes. And according to the media, its name is Joe Biden.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I think that um, the reason, you know, Biden has uh, 48% uh, of black voters uh, say that Joe Biden is their their candidate. Uh, 56% of of black voters say that uh, they support uh, Biden because he was... Uh, a loyal, you know, subordinate to uh, Barack Obama. He was Obama's vice president. And so, you know, I, I think between electability uh, questions and uh, uh, the relationship to Obama um, has something to do with with Biden's support. I also think it's interesting that uh, among African Americans under 35, uh, Bernie Sanders um, is their candidate and a candidate and leads um, Biden by twelve uh, percent. Uh, I will say that I do think it's important um, to have uh, African American candidates, and so I think representation is important, but not in its most narrow uh, form, uh, which is to say that simply being African American should be uh, uh, enough. No, that 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 is actually not. Uh, sufficient enough. And so that raises questions about um, how our campaigns are run, or our entire political system uh, that suggests that you have to either be a millionaire or in proximity uh, to millionaires to be able to run uh, a campaign. We have to change these dynamics that open up the field uh, uh, to black people, to brown people who aren't in proximity to to millionaires and who don't have uh, uh, tons of money, which means changing a political system uh, that allows for public financing that puts breaks and limits on uh, uh, private money can help open up uh, uh, can help open up the field.
0: But the way that that um, I mean, this just kind of just makes me go crazy listening. White pundits, white-dominated media, tries to portray the black voter um, in the same simple way that that they themselves are trying to think this thing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the that that they don't think that they're they don't stop to think that well maybe maybe uh, Kamala and, and Corey, for instance in the, these two cases the black voter is also aware that uh, if you as a prosecutor participated in the mass incarceration of our people don't think that you're getting our vote yeah. because of or if you uh Corey, um have these friends on wall street and you and you're a big supporter of, of capitalism and all of this mm-hmm. that that's necessarily what we think mm-hmm. and um it's just amazing the way that this gets framed um and it's it, um, you know because
1: I, I think most media portrayals are are shallow right i mean yeah. they, in the very uh basic sense i mean to be radical is is not to be left wing but is to look beneath is to look at the root right. of of things and so the media um do not appear to be that interested in in looking uh in looking underneath and so um but i think that this is the 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 situation with biden and Um, uh, black support, um, I do think warrants looking um, a little bit more uh, into this. And I think I was saying earlier that the lack of real interrogation of Obama's um, administration uh, has meant that, um, you know, Biden doesn't really have to say much. He can just keep saying well, Obama picked me and keep saying the Obama-Biden administration uh, without right, expecting, right. you know, because there was early on in the debates, there was some effort uh, to try to challenge um, Obama's record. Uh, and that met with, um, uh, you know, backlash from the, the, the DNC. Um, but I think also, uh, you know, Election season is is when African Americans become uh, very popular, uh, where, you know, most times black people are ignored in this country, but, uh, you know, democratic primary means that uh, everyone's jockeying uh, for uh, for black support. And so th- there's, I think, some concern that to uh, poke around Obama's um, uh, 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 administration, uh, could risk that with black voters, but I think that also, um, you know, is 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 a somewhat uh, shallow take on uh, what I think is the political pragmatism um, of black of of black voters. And I think we won't really actually know what black voters think until the voting begins. Uh, cause people right. will remember that, um, you know, people assumed that Barack Obama was unelectable uh, in two thousand eight until. Right. Uh, he was electable um, right. until Iowa, and it became apparent that people would vote for him, um, then, you know, people flocked to his, his campaign. So let's see how uh, Sanders does in, in Iowa, in uh, New Hampshire, um, and if that changes the uh, perception about mm. um, his electability. I think, um, you know, one thing that, that hasn't really been talked about Um, is as the the punditry has uh, continued to insist that um, Bernie Sanders has this uh, racial blind spot um, is how his numbers have actually gone up among um, African-American voters. Uh, I think because there is this cloud that has hung over uh, him about electability because the the mainstream media uh, have treated his campaign as if it were a gimmick, um, that that question uh, continues to persist. But, you know, at some point, people actually do begin to get get the opportunity to begin voting, um, and that will help, uh, I think, um, clarify some of these issues. I think so, too. Yeah. I, I
0: look forward to it, actually. Kianga um, Taylor, thank you so much uh, for uh, being my guest here thank on you. my podcast today. Um, it's uh, I, I really appreciate uh, this uh, more in-depth discussion of things, uh, um, and and less time. I'm speaking for myself now, just watching mm-hmm. the, the sort of simpleton <laughs> media that uh, is uh, taking place right now—the silly season, as you called it. Um, uh, I encourage people to read King's uh, writings or books. Uh, we'll post all this, and um, and and others. Uh, open your mind to others. There are, and there are other podcasts to, to be listening to um there's a lot of information available right now and it can be an exciting time for us to take charge and uh get this country in our hands um the majority uh, that does exist uh and holds little or no power um thank you uh thank you those of you who are listening to rumble here with michael moore and um i'll be talking to you very shortly Thanks, Michael. Thank you.
1: Don't you know we're talking about the revolution it sounds. Like Don't you know? They're talking about the revolution it sounds. Like whisper. While they're standing in the wilder lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation. Wasting time. In the unemployment lines, sitting around, waiting for a promotion. Don't you know they're talking about a revolution? is out